Hello, it's Katie Halper from Useful Idiots. Before getting into today's episode, I want to mention that our interview with the journalist Chris Hedges had so much good stuff in it that we've decided to split it into two parts. So we'll be releasing part two of our interview next week. Thanks so much. All right, welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Matt Taibbi. And I'm Katie Halper. And we have a great show coming up for you. We have a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter and a personal hero of mine, Chris Hedges, is going to be on. Yeah, great guest, great get. Very excited to be talking to him. He was a little less excited. I mean, I don't know why you're saying that. I thought I saw some glimmer in his eyes. I feel like he was very happy to be here. He really likes you. It was a great interview, so tune in. And right now, it's, uh, as our uh, cameraman Reed would say, it's content time. It's content time. Yeah. So but first, we have some pre-content. We do. We have some pre-content. Which can carry diseases, by the way. And that is that we are doing a live stream debate commentary next week. Right. Instead of just live tweeting, no, we're actually going to be on camera. We're going to drink on camera. Yes. We're going to figure out some way to do it. So follow us on Twitter. We'll, we'll let you know exactly where and when to be. But yeah. basically, next Tuesday. the show. So the show is going to be Tuesday instead of, instead of Thursday yeah. next week. So it is that time of the it's week content. where we... We do content time, and we do the four food groups. Right. So it's Uh, Republicans suck, Democrats suck. Isn't that horrible? Isn't that weird? Yes. That's me first, right? Republicans Republicans suck. suck, So I kind of cheated a little bit this week. I mean, Canadian Republicans count basically. Canadian Republicans, what are they? Like the It's the Conservative Party okay, technically. Yeah, sure. So but they they got a big election coming up October 21st between Trudeau and uh, Andrew Scheer, who is the Conservative Party candidate and um, the amazing development last week was that it turned out that Sheer is an American. Well, mm-hmm. which is worse, Sheer being an American or Justin Trudeau doing what is it face? It's not blackface. Black yeah. Well, what was he pretending to be? Was it Arabian Aladdin. Nights? Yeah. Okay. So he was trying to be Aladdin, Aladdin so, face. So they're billing this now as as the American versus Aladdin. And um, Sheer had previously criticized other people who had not renounced their dual citizenship with the United States. Oh, what are the odds? And so there's there's actually there are some great gotcha moments where where uh, reporters are uh, cornering him. And he, he really lards up his Canadian accent in response to being accused of being American, which it's pretty funny. How do you explain your criticism of Michelle Jean's dual citizenship when you hold dual citizenship? I asked a question uh, at the time about, uh, about the fact that she held it, asking my constituents what they felt about that. So this, was, this is a big sc- scandal in Canada. It's like the ultimate in hypocrisy. And of course, he's striking back by, go- by doubling down on the whole blackface Aladdin theme with, with Trudeau. So right. it, 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 Canadians are essentially as, as shallow and stupid as we are right, now, yeah. which is really, I think it's, it's great news for them. One last thing yeah. about that, which is really interesting, the t- Toronto Star did an outraged, outraged editorial about Shear's Sheer turning out to not be, well, right. he is Canadian, but he's also a citizen dual, of another right. country. They said, having to, it's not like having dual feet, they said. It's not like having dual feet. Dual citizenship. It's not like having dual feet. It's like having tri- I read that line tri- like eight feet? times. What does that even mean? I'm not even sure, but it was such, an, it such was, a weird thing to say. Right? Is that like, is there some dual foot lob? Is that like two left feet? Or they just mean like... Well, I, I think some, the idea is you're allowed to have two feet, but you can't have. What a weird! Can't what have a two weird! Is that maybe it's a Canadian turn of phrase? Maybe, yeah. I don't know. The Canadians are, are they're um, a weird. They're people. excellent people, but they're very strange. So. Yeah. Okay, so that's I mean that's that's basically a Republican suck story, a Conservative yeah. Party, and that's coming up on the 21st. So we should find out. It's yeah, gonna be well, interesting yeah. To see who wins. We'll have that. them both call in. So what do we got in Democrats suck? 
Um, we have Speaker Pelosi, who said that she is supporting Representative Cuellar, who is facing a primary challenge from Cisneros. So this is a congressional race in Texas, and you have an NRA um, donation-accepting, anti-choice, basically blue dog, Trump ally Democrat, run, and he's being challenged by a Justice Democrats candidate who's a young Latina woman. He's an older Latino man. There's nothing wrong with being... Latino or older, but just so people know the context, because a really weird big narrative that people use when they go against the Justice Dems is that they're attacking and targeting black members of Congress. And like they're not like they're they have as many. In fact, one of the pe- people they're primarying is a white person and they're primarying him with a black person. Not that this I mean, it's just like they're, they're not even lying. Well, the, uh-huh. the centrists who are attacking them. But do you want to hear this? It's, sure, it's kind yeah. of cool. Okay, let me just play this. Well, you have a, a friendly incumbent rule heading into this election cycle so that if any incumbent Democrat in your house is challenged in a primary, that you will default to endorsing the incumbent Democrat. That's uh, absolutely, that is the easiest question you can ask. So Henry Cuellar is in the audience, Congressman Cuellar from Laredo, who is here and has a challenger in the primary. You are a Henry Cuellar endorser. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. I'm very, very proud of Henry's work in the Congress, and I'm proud to support him. I'm sorry. So it's just a typical, like, kind of spineless blue dog Democrat um, looking out for each other, because this guy really is pretty uh, centrist, pretty Trump-friendly, and won't return the donation he got from the NRA. Hmm. Which, I mean, I, I'm already thinking of, like, the um, people doing devil's advocate defending keeping that money, and you could have a kind of Machiavellian argument where you're like, well, I'm going to spend it on uh, gun safety legislation lobbying. Right. He's clearly not going to do that, though. And it's just, you know, as much as she talks about, like, women, uh, lis- listen to black women as much as she does that. Actually, her listen to black women is more of her Trump clap. I didn't even know. Oh, I've this never, is on Twitter. It's like, meme. listen to black women or give your money to women. You've seen on Twitter, like the hand clap thing? No, I haven't Oh, really? Seen All right, this. well, and then, but I didn't even realize this, there's this other connection, because you remember Nancy Pelosi? This was the most delusional, pseudo-feminist take on Nancy Pelosi's response to Trump. When she stood up, she gave him a standing O. Uh-huh. And she went like this, and people were like, "Yes, slay oh, right. queen." Yeah, she, she was. She uh, gave him so much shade. It's like, no, she stood up and gave him a standing O. She had something in her eye. Basically. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was so weird. Anyway, that was. The, there's there's a whole subgenre of reading into facial expressions that's become like a news thing now. Yeah, I guess like, you have to do it if you're if if your politicians suck as much as Arsu. Arsu, yeah. Yeah. You have this whole subtextual analysis. Right. Yeah. Um, reading reading facial it's like facial recognition journalism. Yeah. So um, isn't that horrible? So I, I've what I've learned is from doing this is that the isn't that horrible stories that evoke the worst reaction in you have to do with animals. Yeah. When I talk about millions of people dying, you're like, oh, that's interesting, right? But if well, it has to do right. with like a fluffy cat or something no, like that, I don't or, like or, or I'm sorry, Tell dog. Me a, about a little, cat, a little dog with a flat face, yeah. right? Yeah. Seals, you didn't like that either. Or pigs. Or pigs. So they don't have to be flat. I'm not, I don't discriminate. I just don't like cats. Or do you remember the other animal I don't like? Let's see how much you were. How seen I was and how listened to. Oh my God! I, I, I didn't see you enough. I didn't listen. I wasn't to, seen. No. Sharks. What? Sharks. That's right. Because you you didn't you I wouldn't mind them. if Amy Klobuchar killed a shark. Right. With a with a with a golf shot. I'm pro shark aside. Right. Yeah. And Anderson Cooper is a shark apologist. I is once he? heard him on the radio being like, "They're really misunderstood." I'm not kidding. 
Yeah, sharks, sharks are misunderstood. Yeah, he has shark. He has it, human blood on his hands. Shark bite human blood. Sharks just want to eat you. Yeah. They're oh, not misunderstood. you know who they should he the, they need to be the mascot for. You know which political campaign? Oh, uh, for Cory Booker. Booker Buttigieg. Booker Buttigieg. Yeah, don't forget. Yeah, Buttigieg. L- however little you say fighting his name. shark. Yeah, fighting shark. Yeah. yeah, an ostrich almost killed Johnny Cash. By the way. Really. How? Scraped his stomach with his claw. <laughs> I know this from reading his autobiography. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's funny. That, yeah, it is funny, right? So, okay, just just quickly, the, the story, the isn't that horrible story this week is 11 elephants plunged to their deaths in, quote, ravine of hell waterfall in Thailand. Why? Why did they do wildlife that? Wildlife officials in Thailand said Tuesday they have discovered the carcasses of five more wild elephants oh downstream God. from a waterfall where the bodies of six other elephants were found last weekend. The carcasses were discovered after the first six elephants plunged to their deaths at the Hau Narok Ravine of Hell Waterfall in Khao Yi National Park in northeastern Thailand. And we have a little clip of a Thai official right now who's going to tell us something important. <laughs> And what he's saying there in that clip is it's unsafe even for elephants to go outside. Right. So stay inside. And listen to or listen, watch yeah, Useful li- Idiots. Yeah, listen, right. listen to Useful Idiots. Because even, even, even elephants can't handle it out here. The world is just, it's, it's falling apart. Elephants have really good memories, right? They do. So they must not have seen the ones in front of them falling. Here, I'm going to tug at your heartstrings oh, now. No. You know why they went over the waterfall? To save them? No, to save a baby oh, elephant. It's like, like the a, ultimately horrible oh, story. God. So So six of them went over and then... No, so five of them went over, and then six more went over. And we don't even know whether more or more For have back, happened. Yeah, they could have more auxiliary elephants yeah. coming down the We should revisit the pike. this next week, Wow, more elephants died in the I in care the about human beings. I used to not even care about animals at all. When people told me that their dogs died, I'd be uh-huh. like, sorry, whatever. I mean, I wouldn't say that out loud in my head. That's what I would think. <laughs> Is that so. what you were like? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, whatever. We should find if you were a friend of Katie's in your childhood. Yeah, and, and I said that no childhood. I, this is like five years ago, and okay. then my parents adopted this cute dog. You know, when you look at a dog, when humans and dogs look at each other, they release oxytocin, the bonding hormone, uh-huh. more than they do with cats. Okay, and I'm sure more than they do with sharks. So, um, for isn't that weird? We have, uh, you know, Barry Weiss, our dear friend Barry Weiss from the New York Times. This is from Mondo Weiss, which is a great website. Oh, I just realized Barry Weiss, Mondo Weiss. They have nothing to do with Weird. each other, though. Just two Jews. So Barry Weiss uh, has been making the, the rounds. I don't know if you've seen this, and she's promoting some book that she wrote. But earlier, this is from a couple of weeks ago, but it's just too good to resist. She did an event at the 92nd Street Y, and uh, she likened anti-Zionist Jews who support boycott, divestment, and sanctions, BDS, the BDS campaign against Israel to Jews who had surgery to reverse their circumcisions just so they can fit in with the cool goyim. Oh, my God. So here's what she actually said. So Jake Tapper, another guy who I'm ashamed to share a tribe with, he said, what do you think about Jews who support BDS? It's not Is a that your Jake Tapper yeah, it's voice? it's not great. It's not very good. What do you think about Jews who support BDS? I'll give you an historical example that I've been thinking a lot about. In... Um, around the time of the Maccabees and the Hanukkah story, the Jewish boys, teenagers and young men, were so um, desperate to fit into the surrounding society. And they wanted to pass off as non-Jews in the gymnasium where you obviously exercised in the nude. So they actually underwent an ancient surgery to undo their circumcisions. Don't vomit. 
this is real. It's really real, and the details are. The reason Pokemon. I bring that up yeah. is that the desire to be a part of the cool group yeah. and the desire to be a part of the group that you always thought was your home and the deep psychological discomfort of realizing it might not be is very powerful. And feel a part of your foreskin. Right. I just made that up in real time. I'm very impressed. Okay, with I thought that was actually no. a thing. Okay. No, I just so, added that on. Just the tip. Sorry. I'm really. I'm, didn't, didn't. I'm, but isn't that like a weird? She's like, so, I've been thinking a lot about so reversing supporting the Palestinians is 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 reattaching your foreskin. Yes. Okay. I don't know if it's a foreskin extension. <laughs> foreskin extensions. There, right. Some yeah. It's like foreskinoplasty. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. A transplant or an implant. Or, as we brought up once, but I don't think it made the cut, which is so weird because it's so appealing to hear about. Oh, I didn't even know. I didn't even do that. I really didn't do that. But uh, I don't know if it made the edit, but we did talk about that movie, Europa, Europa. Right, which yes. Is about I, I remember that scene, yeah. actually, yeah. So you did see it, right? Yes. Where he, in yeah. the bathroom, pulls down his foreskin and it's purple, which led me and my friend to create the hit song, Europa, Europa, Purple Penis Opa, which you may have heard. Yeah, we just talk about foreskin too much in the show already. left and right. Yeah. 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 Uh, so I thought that was kind of weird, right? It definitely is. So that's okay. So we we have the Canadian prime ministerial candidate is is not really fully Canadian, right? We have Nancy Pelosi is not really is fully progressive. Not really fully progressive. We have elephants can't survive uh, and are they dying because of heart. Katie and uh, something about foreskins. Yeah, something about Barry Weiss and missing force, reattached foreskins. Right. That right. is her band name. Right. Barry Weiss and the reattached foreskins. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of Jews and uh, body parts, it's right. time to talk about Bernie's heart. And <laughs> that rhymed. I did not plan that. <laughs> I didn't plan any of those things. So, legitimately a major news event. Yeah. Because there's no way around it. It's a serious blow to Bernie's candidacy. Heart. Yeah. And our hearts and his candidacy. Yeah. So, I mean, people probably know this. At first, we thought it was just a stent, kind of a routine. Well, I didn't think that. But oh, yeah. you didn't? You saw it from the beginning when you heard about it? Well, I mean, I, I, they, were, they were trying to pass it off as a routine procedure right. or something that was, you know, like maintenance or something yeah. like that. And no, you aren't hospitalized and have to have a stent put in unless you have a major oh. cardiac event, I don't think. Really? So. I guess so. Yeah. And I think that was kind of a problem with the story is that a lot of Bernie's critics, you know, got a lot of mileage out of right. this because the campaign, I think, mishandled probably. Yeah. They those. should have come out from the gate. They should have just owned it. Or Marty, an MI at least. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, I agree. And it's very hard for me to ever criticize Sanders or his campaign. But I think that to be fair, no matter what he had done, they would have gone after him. Yes. But I do think that that lent, it, that lent an air of kind of like secrecy it gave the secrecy allegations some legs. But you know what? I'm just going to say that's anti-Semitic. If you say that, you're an anti-Semite because of the... Oh, so we're officially declaring that now? the secrecy of the Jews, yes. And that they're sneaky people and wily people. And honestly, I'm disgusted by anyone who has said this. And I'm putting you all on notice. So if you think Bernie had a heart attack and and actually, you hate if you Jews, think he had a heart attack at all, if you're actually even listening to this yeah. right now, you hate Jews. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You should have walked out of the room the second I said right. heart attack, or you should have emailed Rolling Stone and been like, "Why are you spreading these lies against Amo Bernie?" I'm just going to use the the anti-Semite allegation as loosely as people have used the sexism with Hillary and with Warren. Not that there isn't sexism against them, but sometimes it's overused. So I mean, the the, the part of the problem here is a little bit of a Boyle cried wolf situation because ever since Bernie 
announced his run for the presidency, there's been like a story once every three days. Should, should Bernie drop out? Oh Bernie should drop out. And you can you can go back and look. It started really as soon as as soon as he started doing well in early 2016 yeah. in the primaries. Right. You started to see a lot of these stories, but now. You know, it's just one story after another, and, and there's all this concern trolling going on in these uh, in these stories. Bernie Sanders' heart scare, Democrats on campaign trail and House leadership uh, may be too old. That's from, you know, Chris Saliza in CNN. You know, how Bernie Sanders' heart attack changes the 2020 race. Sidney Ember, of course, chimed in in about six seconds. Bernie Sanders has heart attack, his doctors say, as he leaves hospital. Sidney Ember from New York Times. Who, yeah. Uh, this is what this is my favorite part of what she said. Ready? She, I can find her writing. I could like hear it from miles away. It's such a clear voice. It's like this passive-aggressive pseudo-objective. Sorry, I've never heard her talk, but this is how I hear her talk. But if Mr. Sanders has until this week largely avoided questions about his health, he has projected an image of fitness as a candidate and has maintained a blistering schedule on the campaign trail. The spotlight is now squarely on him. The ages of the current leaders notwithstanding, many Democratic voters have expressed discomfort with nominating a septuagenarian candidate, a notion that some political strategists say Mr. Sanders' heart attack is unlikely to dispel. Okay. They should use that voice to interrogate prisoners at Gitmo. Right? They would just all kill themselves. So Sidney Ember voice. Bring out the (laughs) Sidney Ember voice. Yeah. Yeah. So this is what I love about her line. Ready? Many Democratic voters have expressed discomfort with nominating a septuagenarian candidate, which, by the way, applies to Warren also, because she's a septuagenarian. Right. Newsflash. A notion that some political strategists say Sanders' heart attack is unlikely to dispel. You had to go to a strategist to find out that it's unlikely that a man's heart attack will dispel. Also, what do you dispel? Discomfort? Can you dispel discomfort? What she means is many Democratic voters who I interviewed specifically to get this point of view um, have expressed discomfort. Uh, with nominating a septuagenarian candidate, unless it's Warren. A notion that some political strategist, who I sought out right. intentionally to get this opinion, say Mr. Sanders' heart attack is unlikely to dispel, dispel whatever. But yeah. I, what I just find amazing is the unlikely dispel part. That's so passive aggressive. It's like people are afraid of older people. Let's just accept that as a premise, right? And some people think that his having a heart attack is unlikely to dispel that fear. First of all, I think it's an inappropriate verb. You it's dispel kind of a like, double, double negative-ish. Yeah. But how, that's such a dick move. Like, duh, you well, have a she's, heart. She's a I know, dick. she's a dick, yeah. yeah. And I say that with nothing but respect. Okay, but here's a, who's the bigger dick? We have to have big dick energy competition. <laughs> um, big bad dick energy competition between uh, Sidney Ember and... David Axelrod, who she quotes in this article. So this is the David Axelrod quote. Running for president is a physical and emotional trial, and the presidency itself is even more demanding. While we all wish Senator Sanders well, this has to be a big flashing light for him. And given his age, it may be for some voters as well. I love how they, they all put it on the voters. Some voters. Right, it's not me. Yeah, this is, this is sort them. of the classic sort of journalism. We, we can't say it ourselves. Right. So some say, you know, source, right. sources say we think he should drop out because he's too old and we didn't right. like him to begin with. And they, uh, and they have to pretend it's for his sake because um, if they're afraid of it, to admit that they want him to drop out for other reasons, they're basically admitting that he's a threat. Right. Right. Yeah. So but my favorite um, of the concern trolls, I think, is it's truly wrong to tell Senator Sanders to hurry back. This is Tom Watson, by the way, the co-creator of Hillary Men. It's truly wrong to tell Senator Sanders to hurry back. This has the mark of tragedy. Let's encourage a little more rest and downtime. We already know Bernie's message feels like this is taking the wrong turn. 
Lord knows I'm not a Sanders guy. Even but the I'm, Lord knows. I know. But I'm very nervous about folks. But I'm very nervous about folks pushing too hard to get him back on that brutal grind so quickly. Although I oppose his candidacy, I think Bernie is a progressive elder statesman. Can we all live with the consequences? <laughs> Fuck you, Tom Watson. Like, does he think he's he's fooling anyone? No, I mean, yeah. the, the thing about this that's crazy is when uh, Hillary Clinton had her stumble yeah. in 2016, the ethics of that story are, are a little odd because on the one hand, it's you can't really infer too much from a, p- a piece of video that just right. shows a person, you know, having, a little, having a little trouble on a hot yeah. day. You know, who yeah. knows? The only problem is she she did actually have, you know, a history. She had a, she had a, trans, a TIA, a transient ischemic attack. Yeah. Uh, and she had... Concussion. She had, yeah, it, which awesome. caused a concussion because uh, because she fell. Right. So if 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 she were to to have any future problems that would be concerning, it would involve fainting, right? So right. that that was a difficult one to know exactly how right. to report. Like I personally probably wouldn't go near that that right. one. Yeah. But when that happened, the like the universal reaction among reporters w- was we just sh- shouldn't go there. Right. Be- among other things, because the the Republicans had been making a big yeah, deal right. of it Amongst for a while. Amongst non right wing reporters. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. So and the health issues are re- are legitimate for in can in campaigns, especially when you're talking about an older candidate. Right. And actually, I think it's probably true the Sanders campaign could have been more upfront about right. this. Um, but I just, they don't always behave that way. You right. Know? So. It's, yeah, I mean, it, I remember when that thing happened with Hillary, I saw the video, and it freaked me out, and I said that, but I also said that that in itself isn't a reason to... Right, like, to, it's a piece to, of the puzzle. Yeah, you know? it's a piece of, yeah, and I actually think, honestly, I think Sanders' heart attack is still better than Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas. <laughs> Not better. Sorry, I don't mean better. I mean more electable against Trump. I really think that. And because, why do I think that? Because I think Sanders can always respond to Trump by challenging him to a one-on-one basketball game, which is an idea I took from Nathan Robinson, uh-huh. former guest. And I don't think that Warren can respond to, it's getting worse, the, the stuff about her. I mean, again, I'll support her if she wins the nomination, but I'm just saying... Not just because I like Sanders. I honestly think he's the most electable one. I mean, yeah, that would be some ugly basketball, but yeah. no. We Have you seen Sanders? He's good. Okay. Yep. Oh, mm-hmm. my God. Imagine Trump coming out with like a headband yeah, and the, the, armbands the, the, the and full, everything. The full on Will Ferrell semi, semi-pro yeah. with the head, with the, yeah. the, the 70s headband. Yeah. yeah. That would be bad. So you're probably wondering, what does this Bernie thing mean for us? What does this Bernie thing mean it for means us? It means that I'm committed to running taking on more of the share of the carrying more of the weight because as viewers listeners probably know i did offer to be sanders running mate right i actually have been very derelict i'm supposed to send him my resume but all this means is that i'm gonna carry more of the load it's more more appear you're gonna have events in more, peoria yeah. olympia yeah. washington yeah. fresno yeah and you're gonna be there because you already agreed to be work for me in some capacity. Yeah, it's gonna be a no-show job, basically. Yeah, yeah. but you're I'm gonna just ha- gonna pad my yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we're gonna have to take the show on the road. Excellent. Um, Sounds yeah. good. Are you really nervous? Are you nervous about his health? Um, a little, I mean, look, it's 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 serious. There's no way around. I, I think thing is, the Americans have such a, a short attention span. And their ability to follow the news is so so limited yeah. that three news cycles from now people won't even remember that yeah. he had a heart problem. So you know it's it's not like it was in 1988 or 92 when this right. would you know when when Paul Songus had a health issue in 92, um, you know he had to leave the campaign because of this. Right. Whereas that's that don't, that's not going to happen yeah. this time. All he has to do is is look is look fine a couple of uh, months from now and it'll be yeah, all right. Yeah, and do well in the debate. Right. And yeah. uh, remember. Dick Cheney had three heart attacks and was right. the de facto president. So right, all right. I guess we gotta we gotta talk about uh, it again. It being the it impeachment. 
Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about impeachment. Matt, you have a piece in Rolling Stone. The whistleblower probably isn't. It's an insult to real whistleblowers to use the term with the Ukraine gate protagonist. Now, when you wrote this, did you know it would be as much of a release as such a shitstorm? I didn't. I guess because I wasn't following how the rest of the news landscape as much. So I didn't realize that there nobody else had really gone there right. yet. And so, you know, the, 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 there's such total unanimity about this story right now that now if you have if there's even like a little bit of um pushback on yeah. this that the sort of the entire weight of twitter <laughs> surrounded uh this story pretty quickly right and what's funny is last week when we talked and we had um pussy rides nadia yeah. yeah we we talked about how hard it was to talk about ukraine gate with any skepticism or impeachment with any reservation just from strategic reservation not even ethical moral stuff right that's we separated right. those things out um and then you know sure enough you write this piece and you are totally attacked and personally attacked it's not just Sorry. that people disagree with you it's that um people you know I love the way people attack you by comparing you to Glenn Greenwald. I'm sure that really hurts your ego. Very stupid yeah, Glenn you're, Greenwald, you're right? Just, you're just like the Pulitzer Prize winning Glenn Greenwald. Yeah. Yeah, no, look, one of the things that's happened in, in the news landscape, and I've learned to deal with it, but but I think um, it's not a small thing. Like, what, what, what they do is they, there are all these words that are just sort of bad. You, like, they, once they repeat enough that Glenn Greenwald is a, is, a, is sort of this villain. Yeah. It's almost like the Emmanuel Goldstein in 1984. Like, they sort of invoke his name to sort of scare people. Right. You're a Greenwald. Right, right, totally. And there are other things, like you're an Assadist, right? Yeah. So, like, you, you, Tulsi Gabbard, you talk about Assadist, right. Putin. You know, there's all these sort of words that, that get dredged up. And what happens is people, it's not so much that it's, like, with me, but people don't, other people don't want to deal with it. You know? Yeah, right. And, and you so, said that, right? Yeah, you said that people don't want to deal with this because this happens. And it, right. I mean, I, I think it does have an effect. Like, it's it's exhausting. I mean, I think that it, it just, it's stifling. It's a form of stifling. But should we set up the, before sure, we yeah, talk about absolutely. the response? Let's All I was really saying is, so, so when, basically, to go back, there are two types of leaks, basically, in the news. There's the unapproved leaks and approved leaks, right? If you, like, if you go back in history, the classic pair is Snowden comes out right. with his thing. And that's an unapproved leak, right? He comes out Fair. and says there's a vast illegal surveillance program. Everybody goes nuts. He ends up having to leave the country, and it totally you know, rips up right. the entire news landscape. That's like an unapproved story. That's like not supposed to come out. And when those things happen, the full weight of everything falls down on those kinds right. of whistleblowers, right? Yeah. But the intelligence community is constantly leaking to the news. Right. And these are not really leaks. They're really more like news releases, yeah. right? So an example is so when Snowden did his thing, there was a leak, and, and Snowden writes about this in his book, where they leaked the um, the contents of, a, of conversations between the, the Al-Qaeda leader al-Zawahiri yeah. and a bunch of confederates around the world. And they, the term was the, the, the conference call of doom. Uh -huh. And so what they were doing in this instance, they, they were getting bad press for having right. an illegal surveillance program. So they wanted to kind of turn the news cycle right. and say, hey, surveillance is good, too. We catch this stuff, right? Right. So that's... That's like a an curated leak. An yeah, it's a curated. It's an it's an approved news story, right. right? And so this is this is really like you know sort of official them saying we're going to give you a little bit of the hidden right. story, and because we have motives here, right, right, right. And so all I was saying was there's a difference between a whistleblower 
who's a person who comes out with something that is legitimately dangerous, right? right? And is is going to basically end that person's life. You right. know, they're, they're going they to lose like, their jobs, yeah. they're going to face prosecution, they're going to have to leave the country, and, and I sort of cataloged all the people right. who, who've gone to prison, you know, the, the, the new practices. If you talk to a reporter about, you know, they'll, they'll charge you with the Espionage Act now. In this instance, in the Ukraine story, this person, you know, this is an approved news story, right? Yeah. It doesn't mean that the information is wrong. Sure. It just means that this is this is part of an establishment narrative that inv- that advances a story that significant institutional powers are behind, right? right? So there there is a significant portion of the Democratic Party, the press, etc., that is is sort of pushing this narrative against Trump. So that kind of leak, it's not like a single person's outrage conscience what i was really saying was this is this is the other kind of story right right? it was presented as this lone person coming out and uh, i don't i didn't think it was that you know and i think that's that that's that's a context that we have to have when we when we look at stories like this and the instant reaction was essentially you love trump Right. So. Right. um, Which I I understand because, you know, obviously, I mean, I got retweeted by Breitbart, which is not which is not awesome, but it happened. So. Right. But this is a real problem, like the inability of people to judge ideas on their merits or respond to them. I mean, there are going to be times when there's overlap. Politics will make some strange bedfellows. And yes, when you write this piece, sure, will the right wing try to weaponize this for their own sinister purposes? Yes. Does that mean that you're the same as them or that you're writing this for that reason no and you know it's like we see this also with war stuff i mean this is a policing mechanism and what troubles me about this is like i mean my take in this is probably is not common or popular and and i I think probably a lot of people who are you know are going to disagree with me about this like I look at the story in the context of a lot of stories in the last three years that are leaks from the intelligence community. And to me, there's an accumulated problem here, which is why I'm, I'm a little right. suspicious of this. Not everyone's going to see it that way. I understand sure. that. But if you if the immediate reaction is to be like, you know, you, you can't have that opinion or else you're this, this, this and this and this and right. you're pro Putin and you're pro Trump and all that stuff. What's going to end up happening is the only place that people are going to feel like they can get their opinions from safely is going to be this. this continually narrowing little strip and they've they've already you see already like oh that came out on fox that can't be true that this right so now the the only place that people can get their news basically is the times the msnbc slate whatever it is you know then you only have to police that little piece of territory and you know you can control the whole narrative right and And it also pushes people to the right because if people this story and this perspective resonates with a lot of people who i don't who are not on the right and if you're only letting you know you're lucky you have rolling stone but if you're trying to shut those people down people like you down which we already know people are trying to do because they'll tweet at both of us tag us and tag rolling stone right and they'll be like literally shut it down they're asadists yeah then you're you would you you are trying to push people like you let's say off of of more mainstream platforms and then where would you go if you want to be published you know yeah well that's that's why the news landscape has become pretty sanitized lately, but right. it's also why people like Joe Rogan have are bigger than CBS practically. Right. right? Yeah. And those two phenomena kind of go hand in hand. Like, if you 
if you very heavily police what goes into what used to be the traditional news outlets, and then people are gonna they're they're gonna end up outside the right. margins, but the margins are gonna get bigger. You know, right. and so also know. it's such a great metaphor when the U.S. like took away they revoked uh, Snowden's passport. Right, mm-hmm. it's such a great metaphor. Snowden didn't want to go to Russia. Like right. he's he's so anti-Putin. He's so anti-authoritarian. Like he's not a particularly leftist, you know. And he talks about him in this new book he just published, um, Permanent Record. He Permanent talks record, about yep. the northern southern political spectrum. Uh, as opposed to left right this is such a great metaphor like the united states forced him into the arms of russia literally he like he needed a country to go to he couldn't go back to the united states russia saw a good pr opening they welcomed him and he went there which is like a great metaphor for what's happening here or what people are trying to do right which is like they want to marginalize people and then if if the only because if if there weren't such policing and stifling of opinion your your story would be like championed or your perspective would be championed by people all over the political landscape, right? Because it does resonate with people all over the political landscape, but the people on the left or some of them are afraid to say it because they'll be called Trumpian. So then what happens? You only see it on the right. Yeah. And then you you then you turn back at the person, you blame that person, but you're the one who's making the hostile environment which prevents people on the left from sharing as much as they would. Yeah, people now work backwards. They say, look, he's a Putin sympathizer, right? right? But, well, he's there because he, yeah, exactly. you know, we, drew, we drove him to the far corners of the earth because he can't be in the United States because right. he, uh, because he told us about an illegal surveillance program and the per, and the person he finked on lies to Congress. Right. This is the director of the CIA and that person's on MSNBC. So what does that tell everybody? Yeah. Talking about John Brennan. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, So the, the message is pretty clear. Like if you, if you release something that's actually a dangerous secret about the United States, like, you know, they'll, they'll crush you in this country and if you're complicit in it you get a cable show right you know so and so that's 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 all i was saying about the story is like you have to think about the whistleblower in that context because everybody's suddenly celebrating oh you know we have to protect whistleblowers well we don't protect whistleblowers i just thought it was an appropriate moment to remember that right well see what's what's different and makes it hard i guess is that trump did threaten to kill him of course yes so so how does that fit into it is it because the institutions of the cia the intelligence institutions aren't going after him so that's what makes it different if this followed the, the pattern of whistleblowers in recent memory Trump would already have arrested this person and, the, and this right. person would okay. already be yes. facing 35 years in prison like Trump, Thomas Drake if that goes on to happen people are going to lose their minds they're going to say oh my god what a human rights right. violation except we've been doing that already sure. for 20 right. years so that's all I'm all I'm saying but at is, that point would that person said person be a whistleblower that's what, what I'm trying to say right. is everybody is 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 going nuts about what an authoritarian trump is and he may yet be that may, right, that, sure. that, that may it's, yet happen it's certainly in this, not in this thing. It's beyond him but, the, it's but beyond him, yeah. this this person is from the cia is going back to work for the cia right uh and the cia already uh does that to people you right, know and yes. I, th- I thought it was appropriate to, to at this point to sort of step in and say people who actually oppose the state you know on on those right. grounds, they're already facing significant consequences. So it's all I'm, all I'm really saying is this is a as opposed to one person battling the massive injustices right. of the state. This is a fight between two institutionally powerful groups. Right. Yeah. I think what's weird and people are uncomfortable with and they can't wrap their heads around is the fact that this is like the first time, I guess, that the executive branch and the intelligence state which you don't say deep state. Everyone's like, you say deep state. You don't the even intelli- say that. Yeah, the intelligence whatever, community, the intelligence whatever. Yeah. Community, whatever you want to call it, are not are really like at heads. Well, they're with each they're other. completely at odds, and, and again, at that, odds, that, yeah. that's 
that's part of the narrative that, that I think people, the context of this, like, you know, think about when Trump, before he even came to office, the four heads of the intelligence agencies, the, you know, NSA chief, Mike Rogers, right. Comey from the FBI, they they present him with the, the Steele report right. and they leak it to right. CNN. Right. That's an it's unprecedented kind of right. opposition. Right. So they've been at loggerheads from the moment Trump came into office. So this is a this isn't a, a continuation of an ongoing clash between you know it's an, an unprecedented. Yeah, clash it is between. unprecedented, so, which is why I think it's I think there's some people who are, really don't understand it. And what the point is is that right when you have the executive and the CIA at all at uh, odds, you will have the president going after someone, but you won't have the CIA going after that person. Right. And that makes, that is a difference because in the past that person comes at, from the institution that then like devours that person. Right. Or tries to. Yeah. In the past they've been together. Together. Right. So together right. devouring. So where the president goes, so does the CIA. Yeah, or yeah, what exactly. the president devours, so goes, the, so devours the CIA. Yeah, and, and, yeah. Be, and just to be clear, this happened under Bush. It happened under Obama. Right. So it's, it has nothing to do with, ha, until now it had nothing to do with party. Right. Now, now there's a schism and it, that's all I'm doing is pointing this out. But right. you know, it's, it's a fascinating story. It's going to be fascinating to see how it develops. There's two whistleblowers now, not one. And that was part of one of the things I was saying is, you know, is this one person? Is it many people? Is it is it is it a group effort? We're going to find out more about that, and it will be interesting to see. Anyway, well, someone else who takes a lot of unpopular views and a lot of hits, yeah, is Chris Hedges. Yeah, Chris is sort of the the, the standard bearer for being willing to be unpopular right. and, and going against the grain. And so we're gonna we're gonna talk to him. And, and just to just to preface this, one of the things I love about Chris is like a really good reporter there has to be an element of just wanting to zag when everyone else is zigging you know right. what i mean like it, there has to be the the not just the willingness but the desire to go against the grain and chris kind of has always been that person he's he's gone to right. places that nobody else wants yeah. to go and and so i think he embodies a lot of qualities that are really really kind of going out of style in the business and so we're going to right. talk to him about all that right. stuff we're joined today by a very special guest, the uh, celebrated war correspondent, one of my heroes in journalism, Chris Hedges, Pulitzer Prize winner. He's going to talk to us about a whole bunch of stuff today. But we think we should start off by what you were doing yesterday down on Wall Street. Uh, tell us about the protest, Extinction Rebellion, the history of it, what happened. So Extinction Rebellion is a British-based group. It's about a year old. Um, and it, I think, has come to the very correct conclusion uh, that the ruling elites are incapable of reform. Uh, and appealing to their better nature is a waste of time uh, because they don't have one. Uh, and that uh, as a species, we're completely fucked, um, even if we stop all carbon emissions today, which isn't happening. Uh, and therefore, our last best chance is to disrupt the machine, to carry out sustained acts of civil disobedience. Uh, it's a, you know, Extinction Rebellion is a much more robust organization in Great Britain. Mm -hmm. um, so the goal is to really shut down the center of London, especially around Westminster, for three weeks. Um, they shut down London, large parts of London, uh, in April for 10 days with a thousand arrests. Wow. Um, and I think that's it. I think that uh, that that's the only hope. So I was with them uh, and uh, gave, you know, one of my diatribes. Yeah, tell us about the your diatribe. It's not, it's, right, right, it sounded right. kind of like a classic hedges. <laughs> it was, yeah, right. Yeah. Everything's a sermon. That's yeah. what happens. And you <laughs> we should point out, we're going to get into this, but you're, you're, you were a minister. You went to divinity I, I school. I am. And, I, uh, yeah. I did. Yeah. yeah. And uh, But, you know, I asked the question, who are these people behind me in this temple of greed, 
I probably lifted that from one of your books. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, and we know trademark. We know who they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they were the slaveholders. They were the uh, robber barons and and the railroad magnates that. Uh, stole uh, indigenous land and killed indigenous people and slaughtered the buffalo herds. Um, they are the uh, industrialists who gunned down hundreds of American workers uh, who were trying to organize at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. Um, they are the people who, uh, you know, uh, unleashed the reign of terror against uh, black people uh, through black codes and lynching. Um, yeah, that's who they are. And I, I went and then I asked, who are we? Right. And where do we come from? We came from uh, Denmark Vesey and, and uh, Nat Turner and, and John Brown and Harriet Tubman and uh, Malcolm and Martin and Eugene V. Debs. And, you know, we're often defeated. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I closed by saying, uh, you know, that I don't know if we're going to succeed, but these corporate forces have us by the throat and they have my children by the throat uh, and in the end I don't fight fascists because I'm going to win I fight fascists because they're fascists right right and and you did this down in Wall Street yeah. right the symbolism With, yes okay. it was perfect it was a beautiful yeah. set hopefully somebody filmed it <laughs> is the girl in front of the bull still there uh, yeah we were a little up from okay. we were a little down from that so it was right in front of the New York Stock Exchange yeah. a lot of people had a, a die in so and they'd splattered blood uh, with holding signs to uh, commemorating those who had died in the climate disasters, flooding, wildfires, etc. Um, yeah, she's my favorite neoliberal feminist monument. The girl, girl standing the yeah. standing in front of the bull, which uh-huh. is funny because I don't know how she's going to defeat the bull. She's just standing in front of it. <laughs> right. Like she it's charge at it. Yeah, or? I mean it's a great symbol in a way, right, uh-huh. of like the co-opting of feminism and activism by uh, capitalism. But it's supposed to be like a lean-in little girl. Right, right, She's going to lean in for the last time. (laughs) Unfortunately, yeah. Um, I just had Christian Parenti on, by the way, who wrote this great piece in Jacobin about um, environmentalism and Marxist environmentalism and also how we can fight climate change without self-loathing, which is an interesting proposition. How do you how do you do it without? Well, he was saying that it's you reminded me of it when you mentioned the buffalo. But he was saying that, you know, human beings and um, interact with the environment and that that per se isn't bad. It's the capitalist interaction with the environment. And so we don't have to, like, make it man or human humans against nature. Well, it's the treating of the environment as an inert commodity that you exploit until exhaustion or collapse. Yeah. Uh, And his book, um, The Name Escapes Me, which I read. Uh, Tropic of Chaos. Yeah, Tropic of Chaos is quite good. Yeah, it's a very good book. Yeah, Chris has read basically like every book. No, no, I, I hang out with Cornell West. So, uh, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that's like okay. it always is very humbling because he has read every book. Right, <laughs> and then chastises me for not for things you didn't read. Never read Schopenhauer. <laughs> brother Chris, does he call you Brother Chris? Well, we're close. He just oh, okay. calls me Chris. Yeah, Schopenhauer. Sometimes do you find Schopenhauer funny? I find Schopenhauer very funny. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I haven't read Schopenhauer. So really? Uh, yeah. I, uh, or not much of it. Yeah. Huh. Uh, should I go read it? Like, I mean, another... you should do a reading now. It's so dark that that it, it, it goes over into being funny, but maybe not everybody would think that. Well, that's kind of like Kierkegaard. Right. Yeah, I do yeah, like. Yeah. yeah. Who said um, it? Kierkegaard or uh, Schopenhauer? We, we could have a contest have a, yeah. later. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, all right, so how, how did you get into journal? Like, let, let's go back to your background. Your you, your father was a minister, right? Yeah. You talked about this. So it, was ne- it wasn't your intention to go into journalism, was it? 
Um, well, it was my intention to be a writer. Right, yeah, So exactly, I always yeah. wrote. I mean, for the age of four, you know, mm. I knew what I wanted to be. But I had this, and I, I, I published my first piece when I was 12 in a historical journal. It was the history of my father's church, which was very old. Um, and then I published my first piece in a major newspaper when I was in college um, in the Christian Science Monitor. Mm. Um, you want to hear that story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so. You were in Boston, right, so at the time? Right? No, no. I was in, so I went to college at Colgate, so okay. upstate oh. New York. And I got an internship. Uh, on the House Foreign Affairs Committee for the summer, okay. on the Subcommittee on International Development. And so uh, somehow, rather than answer letters, I uh, got myself into a position where it was done during the Carter presidency. I was writing a case study of Gulf and Western and how they treated sweatshop workers in La Romana in the Dominican Republic, and they were killing them. They were shooting labor. Union leaders were being murdered, found dead in a ditch. And... Uh, so uh, I found this guy, his name was Sasha Volman. He'd been like a partisan leader in Romania during World War II. And then, so he was one of these European socialists who hated communism. Mm. And he went to the Dominican Republic and became a huge CIA asset. Oh. Um, so he you know, was fighting, quote unquote, the communists. Um, but at the same time, he hated the big corporations. And he was in a hospital in Georgetown having some pretty serious surgery, like his gallbladder removed or something. And I found him, and he had all the dirt on Gulf and Western, and he gave it to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, just dirty, dirty stuff. Wow. And so one day I'm in my the congressman's office. This was Michael Harrington from North Shore, Boston. And two guys in suits come in from Gulf and Western, uh, which was all mobbed up with Charlie Blue Darn. And, and uh, next thing you know, I'm called into the administrative assistance office, and I'm fired from my unpaid internship. Uh, and I go around and collect uh, uh, donations from all the rest of the interns and hitchhike to Miami wow. uh, to go to the Dominican Republic. Yeah, I'll, I'm going to tell you the whole uncensored version. And there was this very beautiful French-American woman named Jeannot. And somehow this is a movie. I convinced her to go with me. Uh -huh. Wow. But I honestly blocked out what my argument was. Argument, years, I like it. A year later... I had lunch with her. She lives in Boston when I was on a fellowship at Harvard. And I said, Jenna, why did you go with me? She goes, oh, but you told me the congressman said I had to go. <laughs> uh, I don't remember saying that. I honestly don't. Well, it's effective. Anyway, yeah. uh, off be, we went. It was civic duty. Yeah. Hitchhiking duty. through Georgia with a blonde ponytail. Not a good idea. And we got to Florida. Uh, we flew to the Dominican Republic. And she was a Baha'i and went to a Baha'i retreat. And... Uh, so I was going to go out and finish the work, uh, the investigative work to write this piece about Gulf and Western and how they were breaking and murdering labor union leaders. And um, I had no money, I had no resources. I'm staying in a little uh, dormitory for the sons of Haitian cane cutters uh, uh, run by the Episcopal Church in Santo Domingo. I come out the first day. I run into an American woman who's the organist. She introduces herself as uh, Tamaño. I said, oh, you mean like Francisco Tamaño, the guy who was a colonel in 1965. The US Marines uh, invade. Right. He goes to Cuba. He raises a rebel force. He comes back to the Green Berets, land, wipe him out. He said, yeah, it was my husband's uh, brother. Wow. And uh, so I tell her what I'm trying to do. And she said, well, my daughter, Liliana, I was like 19 or something, who was in her 30s. Uh, has just gotten divorced and uh -oh. is back. Janae, better look out. Well, no, she's off at a Baha'i retreat. So oh, okay, I'm on got my it. own. Good timing. And uh, 
And so, and this, she was a firecracker, this woman. So they lend me the family car. We go out there. And uh, uh, we, we are going to all these sweatshops where the foreman um, had these, they were almost the size of baseball bats and would beat the workers. Wow. Um, and they were, ba- what were they that they were? Well, they were, they were, it was textiles. It was, La Romana was a big sweatshop. Right. Area, but they, what were they beating them with? That were like these, the like, they were yeah. like big truncheons, but they were oh, bigger okay. than truncheons. Yeah. And at one point, uh, they started beating on. I decided to take a picture, and that was it. So the goons start, except that I ran track and I was very good, and they couldn't catch me. And so then it starts to rain because it's right on the coast. You know, these these thunderstorms come in like freight trains, and uh, and so I think her name was Liliana. She's driving up and down on the dirt roads and I'm trying to get to the car before the goons get me and she's screaming don't touch him I'm a camano and uh, finally I make a run for it I get in the car and we drive you know I think it was about three hours if I remember back to Santa Domingo about two hours we stop at this uh, shack beer shack and <laughs> drink a lot of beer and then come out and it, it's the rain stopped and it's feral so you know the the steam is coming up from the vegetation and she pulls me up next to the car and says uh, did I ever tell you I have a tattoo I said no she said you want to see it I said sure <laughs> and she unzips her pants and she has like a butterfly or something tattoo right there and that's when I knew I wanted to be a foreign course <laughs> nice. so, that, so and I published wow, it great. yeah I published I'm... it in the Christian Science Monitor but was it, did you pu- publish the photo as well and all that no no no, no. The, it was the Christian Science Monitor oh right don't okay. you know yeah, yeah 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 they they never talk about uh, sex or death huh yeah everything in between right yeah. Yeah. but you know I I had I, my father was a social activist he was involved in the anti-war movement he was a World War II vet he came back from the war pretty much a pacifist. He'd been in North Africa. Uh, he was very involved in the civil rights movement and the gay rights movement. And I couldn't reconcile the quote-unquote objectivity of American journalism. I cared about writing and loved writing. Um, but I wasn't really objective about injustice, suffering, human misery. Um, and so I did go to divinity school uh, at Harvard. Uh, and then after two years... I kind of had, and I always say Harvard's where I learned to hate liberals. Yeah. Um, we talked about this because yeah. you were on the, you were lived, on the team, I right? lived in Roxbury. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was running a, a small church there uh, in a very bad part of, you know, Boston, right mm-hmm. across from Mission Main Mission Extension Housing Project. And um, so commuting into Cambridge every day where... Uh, with classmates who talked about empowering people they'd never met. Right. Uh, or they like the poor, but they don't like the smell of the poor. So, and they'd all go off. Clara Jeffrey. Yeah, they'd go to Nicaragua and pick coffee for a week with the Sandinistas and spend the rest of the semester talking about But they about wouldn't it. cross the Charles. Yeah, they wouldn't over. take yeah. the Green Line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I took a year off. I went and studied Spanish with the Marinol Fathers. I freelanced, ended up writing stuff for the Washington Post, ended up absolutely broke in Buenos Aires, was actually trying to get a job on a freighter so I could work my way back to New York City and the Falkland War broke out and I was in Buenos Aires so I ended up doing NPR, the Yorkshire Post, the Baltimore Sun. I mean I went from like living on $50 a month to making $600 a day 
Uh, and like all people who don't have never had money, of course, I threw away mm. my clothes and bought like the most gaudy. Yeah, the worst yeah, clothes had, like, you can possibly find. Yeah, the worst find. clothes you could right. possibly find. And yeah. it was Argentino, so you can imagine oh how gosh. bad those yeah. were. <laughs> um, yeah, I had a you res- have photos? No, I, thank God I don't. Do I had a reserve table at La Recoleta Discotheque. Wow. I developed a very expensive cigar habit. Could have been worse. Um, and yeah. So by the end of three months, I made a fortune and it was all gone. And I didn't even really buy anything, but I don't regret it. To get back to the, the your, how your career started, I always, when young people ask me, how do you get into journalism, and I always you say, don't. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's the first thing I say, go, go to med school. Yeah, you can't go to med school. Um, just move overseas to someplace interesting you know yeah but that doesn't work anymore man it doesn't work anymore that's true but it did it it did did for me it didn't my didn't my day because well you were in russia yeah Yeah. i mean because there were outlets i mean i could the boston globe had a foreign section the philadelphia inquirer had a foreign section everybody needed stringers everybody needed stringers so i mean i began as a stringer and Mm -hmm. then eventually was hired uh as a full-time employee but um that doesn't exist anymore i mean you know when i was in salvador Every network had a bureau. They had reporters. They had producers. It's all gone. Yeah, vanished. Yeah, up in smoke. That was a way into the business back then. Was was just going going to hot spots. You know, sure. There, there weren't a lot of journalists who wanted to go to these places. That's right. right. Well, that's the great thing. Yeah. And that was great for my career at the Times because all the jobs that I wanted, nobody else wanted. Right. Like when I volunteered to go to Sarajevo, the executive editor Joe Lelivel said, "Well, I guess the line starts and ends with you." Which was great. So they don't want to go there. They all want to go to Paris, so they want to like hang out in Washington. Well, that was natural at that time because it wasn't exactly the safest place to no, be. No, it in wasn't. Very, well, yeah. forty-five reporters had been killed uh, when, by the time I got there. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, but it was a great. It, it, I mean, there was a lot of opportunity for reporters back then because there there was still this appetite yes. to get the the on the ground thing, and it was kind of it's kind of a hole in the system a little bit, right? Because the editors don't exactly know what's going on. They still actually need the person on the ground to tell them yeah. the who, what, and where, and Right, why. and you know the great thing about it is it's called sat phones. Mm-hmm. Since you can't fire it up, for, they <laughs> have to leave you alone. I mean, when I would like go out in Bosnia with my sat phone, I didn't have electricity, so I had four hours, if I remember correctly, battery. What's a sat phone? A satellite phone. So okay. I would set it up, my photographer would send, he could send over the sat phone, I'd send, then we have to turn it off. Right. They couldn't, can't come for you. Yeah, right. It's great. So go and do your work, come back, yeah, give yeah, us yeah. something, right? And right. you kind of exist, existed for a long time at the Times in this kind of weird gray area where they, you were on the front page regularly. Yeah, and you, well, they need the people East. like that. What yeah. they don't want is you in the newsroom. Right, yeah. right. Uh, that right. never works out really well. Yeah. yeah. So, so we were talking before about the, the first Gulf War, and this, right. I think this is really interesting because this is kind of a metaphor for your whole career. Like the, everybody else was doing this this new form of reporting, this kind of em- embedded pool reporting, right? Yeah, well, it was even worse than that. So, you know, so the first Gulf War, um, the people running the military press operations all came out of Vietnam. And for them, the press was the fifth column. Right. What they didn't realize is that everybody was over there. This was a whole new generation, and they were all... Uh, over there to lick the boots of the military. <laughs> right. Yeah, they just, and, and lionized Schwarzkopf, who was a drunk, and mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, and Storm the and army Norman. was so clueless, yeah. they couldn't figure it out. So they, so they thought the press was the enemy. In fact, the press uh, just wanted to do their part, which is how, what the press always does in war, especially at the inception of wars. Um, and Philip Knightley wrote quite a fine book on it called The First Casualty, which is truth. Um, 
So uh, obviously, I was. I, first of all, I speak Arabic, so I was not about to do the pool. I figured I came here to be a reporter. If I can't be a reporter, they throw me out. So I start going off. I got actually got a, like a Marine Corps uniform, and because so I could go through the checkpoints and wow. uh, I'm sleeping out in the desert with Bedouins. I speak Arabic, and I start filing these stories, and I kind of shatter the. Uh, storyline that the reporters, including the New York Times reporters, were feeding their editors, we can't go anywhere, we can't, and they got really angry. And so the all of the reporters, New York Times reporters, I think there were like five of them, wrote a letter to the foreign editor and said that I was ruining our relationship with the military. Because, because you weren't going by the, I wasn't, pool, the pool structures. I wasn't doing the, well, yeah, the, the way the pool worked is they'd take just a few people out, and then they'd come back. And everybody would write up what they saw, and then everybody would sit in the hotel and write it. I mean, it was right. ridiculous. Uh, That's what happens in campaigns, too. It's yeah, 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 I, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So I never, uh, you do campaigns. I don't know why. I don't, <laughs> don't, don't want to go any near them. <laughs> but it's the same it's, system. Or it's like the White House. You know, you don't right. have to, you know, people don't have to, who knows how what Trump does. But before, you never had to, t- reporters in the White House didn't take notes. Because in real time, they just would hand hmm. them what, the only the only advantage I could see from a distance of being a White House reporter is that you get to introduce your mother to the president. Otherwise, I really, it's just a stenography. I mean, right. it's just the most, and, and, and not only that, but it's humiliating stenography. Yeah. yeah. Just your Helen Thomas, I guess, right? Huh? Unless you're Helen Thomas. Well, she, but look what they did to I know, her, I know, so, right. She was one of the exceptions. But I mean, basically, they, they were trying. They were reacting to Vietnam because during Vietnam, even well, though, because even, not you know, in the beginning of Vietnam. What right. people don't remember is that everybody went in to do their part. Right. And uh, and then, it, you know, the pre- what people don't understand about the press is that it is you're an exception, but it is largely a reactive force. It reacts. It's not a pioneering. It's not like the press told the truth about Vietnam. Uh, what happened was the body bags started coming home and public perceptions of the war changed. And then Walter Cronkite goes on the air, of course, after public perceptions have changed right. to criticize the war. And so the latter part of the war, the press was free to write uh, honestly about the war, or at least not, not completely honest, but more honest. Yeah, they were at least allowed to take, have the take this we might not win this right, right? well they also yeah. covered atrocities I yeah mean, you some know, of them so, yeah. yeah agent I mean, orange i mean they got yeah, around to that yeah, right? uh, yeah yeah i mean now nick turst did a good book kill anything that moves which goes back and looks at the army records the reports so i mean vietnam was just one huge atrocity i mean they didn't begin to come close to explaining the reality but at least they hinted at it that they weren't doing at the beginning um so uh so the army you know, these people who would have been young lieutenants or something uh, bought this line, the stab, stabbed in the back theory, you know, that we would have won the war, but for, yeah. And so that was the funny part, is that they were making war on, on a press. I mean, the, the whole pool system was administered by my colleagues, and it couldn't have functioned without them. And it, they administered it because, despite what they told their editors, they wanted it. And having spent 20 years in war zones, I can tell you only about 10 or 15% of reporters really want to go out. Right. The rest don't. They're, they're handout. They get handouts. The, I mean, that's the honest people in war are photographers, and they mm-hmm. also have the highest casualty yeah, right. rate because they have to get out. Right. But the reporters, go, yeah. yeah, no, they're... So, but, the, it, I mean, you think that the that system, and I'm sorry to dwell on this, but I just find it so interesting. Part of it, it seems to me, I, I was embedded in, in the Iraq war, and I felt like, 
part of the strategy there was to make you feel dependent upon the people oh, who you were embedded not, with. No, no, no. It's yeah. like a Boy Scout. It's like you're a week mm. with Boy Scouts. Oh, yeah. Right. And, uh, of course, most of these reporters have never been anywhere near a ward and are, like, shitting their pants. And they, you know, they, they, they want to be part of the team. Yeah, it's really... Yeah. It's, uh, it, it really... Uh, unfortunately feeds every stereotype of wimpy journalists. Um, now, by the time I got to the Gulf, I'd already been in more combat than anybody who, unless they'd been in Vietnam. Those people were all colonels and up. Uh, and I spoke the language, and uh, so I didn't, I didn't need it, and I didn't want it. And, but once you depend on them for logistics, once you depend on them for security, food, I mean, literally every aspect, what are you going to write? I mean, you yeah, know, are you, totally. uh, you know, if you're, I know, I know reporters who were embedded in units after they took Baghdad, and a lot of these cars, they were nervous. So, you know, if a car would come too quickly at a checkpoint, they'd quote unquote light it up, which meant, right. and it usually meant they just killed a family of six or something. Right. These reporters never wrote that. I mean, I'm, sp I'm not going to name them, but I know who they are. They told me mm -hmm. because they'd instantly be unembedded. Right. right. And th and that's the first problem. The second problem is that you only see the war from the perspective, right. uh, their perspective. So they're off, you know, firing 90 millimeter tank rounds at a village. You, you're not, you don't see the result. Right. Um, it's and I'm not actually against uh, embedding. I think it is an aspect of war reporting, but when that's the only war reporting, then you don't have a clue as to what's going on. Right. Yeah. Right. So you think it should be like you should alternate sides? Or I don't want to do it. I don't. I don't embed. No, but I mean, what do you think the the the, the no? Good I think way you got to have people. Is. Well, so when I went out on my own, Dick Cheney. Uh, was the defense secretary, and they invented this term for people like me called the unilaterals, a new term for being a reporter. And and before the invasion of Kuwait, Cheney sent out a list of like, I think it, it wasn't a long list, ten or fifteen of us that he wanted expelled from Saudi mm. Arabia. Wow! Before the invasion, and I was right. right up at the top. Uh, um, that's a badge of honor. Yeah. yeah but the funny part is they couldn't find me. They had like <laughs> five hundred thousand troops, and they never found me. <laughs> but when you, you say that you don't think embedding is bad, so how is it that... It I think it's an aspect of the right. war, but 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 a, almost a tangential one. So uh, you're always going to have reporters that want to embed. That's fine. But you can't cover a war when your entire, uh, you know, all of the reporting on that war is done right. by embedded reporters. You don't really know what's going on. So ideally you would have, let's say, imagining that newspapers... Still kind well, of you'd have reporters budgets, who are out on their own. It's more dangerous. I mean, it's obviously right. more dangerous. So would one paper have, in, like, ideally, one paper would have someone embedded, someone on, on their yeah. own, someone embedded with the actual native population or indigenous yeah. there? Okay. Yeah. Got it. So you went on, you were, you were based in Cairo for a while after that, yeah, right? four years. Four years. How did you learn Arabic? Uh, so I was with the Dallas Morning News in Central America, and um, I decided I wanted to spend the rest of my life in Latin America. It was, it's a wonderful culture. I speak Spanish. But I couldn't get them to open a bureau in South America, so they offered me London or Jerusalem. I didn't want to go to London, cover the Big royal band. family or something. <laughs> so uh, I said I would go to Jerusalem if I could uh, take a sabbatical and study Arabic. Oh, that's cool. And I convinced the editors of the Dallas Morning News that the best place to uh, study Arabic was that great uh, center of Arabic learning, uh, Switzerland. Oh. Um, so I went to Lausanne and studied Arabic. My first wife was Swiss, and uh, 
And then I uh, later took courses at Hebrew University. Yeah. And plus it enriches your Spanish because of all the AL words yeah. that have Arabic roots. Yeah, yeah, there you go. And lastly, I guess we should, we should ask about the impeachment drama. You had a fascinating yeah. go back and forth on Democracy Now! Yeah, last yeah. week. Um, I, th- I think we actually may disagree on this one a little bit, but, I, but what's, your, what's your take on this? Because I think it's a complicated story, obviously. Uh, it, to me, it's, like a, it's, a, it's a basically a story about dueling elite narratives. Of course right? it is, yeah. because, yeah. well, neither party has defended the rule of law. Mm-hmm. From the first week Trump was in office, you could have impeached him on the emoluments clause, clause alone, uh, inciting racism, using tax laws to go after his uh, political enemies, Bezos, who's a shit at right. Amazon, uh, um, obstructing uh, justice. Mm-hmm. I mean, obstruction, which the Mueller report, you know, was. Uh, a kind of Trojan horse, but he did try to obstruct justice. Yeah, I think you could, yeah. you so could make you, the argument. So, but none of that mattered until you tr- touched the anointed candidate of the Democratic right. Party donor class, which was Biden. Right. So in that sense, it's like Watergate. Right. So it's all like, of the crimes right. the Nixon White House are being carried out against the anti-war movement, the right. peace movement, and Ellsberg's... Cambodians. Cambodia, yeah. every... But as soon as you touch the Democratic establishment, then. Right. And that's what's happened. Uh, so, um, I mean, they may get them. Mm-hmm. They may get them, but as I I wrote a piece called "The Problem with Impeachment," uh, it is it may makes it's probably going to make things worse, right? That's because true. the fundamental structures of our society, which have destroyed our democracy, the the system of legalized bribery and corporate money, the uh, collapse of the courts in the service of corporate power, wholly owned subsidiaries, the uh, the degradation and disintegration of the media as an effective force within a democracy, um, the wholesale security and surveillance state, uh, concentration of wealth and staggering social, none of that is going to change. And that's where our problems come from. And so if you go after Trump and you don't address the underlying decay that gave us Trump, then uh, you are going to exacerbate the antagonisms within the warring tribes uh, and look, we are headed towards, uh, I think, political violence. Um, and, you know, Cesar Sayak, if those pipe bombs had gone off, you would have decapitated right. the entire Democratic Party leadership. So, um, and the country's awash, 300 million weapons, 1.5 right. million, uh, you know, assault-style weapons, these AR-15s. Yeah, I mean, we have an average of a mass shooting every day. So I... You know, and I think that the liberal class and the Democrats see this as a as you know the solution. They personified right. all of their problems into Trump, um, and that's re- not only very short sighted but very dangerous. Right. And why do you think they didn't go after him with the emoluments clause? We know why. I mean, because Pelosi didn't think it was politically expedient. But why? Yeah, I guess the question is why was that not politically expedient? Well, because you have blue dog Democrats, you have all sorts of Democrats who are uh, essentially, you know, by thin margins, right. taking seats in Trump territory. And if uh, the Democratic Party is seen as uh, essentially trying to carry out a vendetta against Trump, um, I think this is the reasoning of Pelosi and the Democratic Party leadership. This would hurt their, uh, 
you know, their ability to uh, maintain control of the House and perhaps take control of the Senate. So we know what her decision was, but that's as bad as the Republicans. Neither party is defending the rule of law. Right. They only defend the rule of law when it's convenient. And then I guess this will give people the illusion of political yeah. protest yeah. a little bit. Uh-huh. You know, like the, it's going to be this enormous drama. Everybody, all their political energy yeah. is going to go into this thing that's not really about. You right. know, right. But so, even yeah. best case scenario for them, what happens, right? Like, do they think that the impeachment vote is going to go through? Well, that's the, there, there are legends now. A lot of the op-ed pieces are basically saying, you never know. It's, right. it's getting more popular, so we might actually get to the two-third. Yeah. And even if that happens, then what happens? Then Pence... If, he, if he's well, as Noam Chomsky points out, Pence will be worse. Because yeah, right. On you know, Donald Trump has no ideology really, and but he's Pence galvanized does, so much Pence opposition. Comes at, Pence is yeah. a Christian fascist, right? Low, but like seeming, but he's not rude. He's polite. <laughs> he's a lot more dangerous. Than <laughs> no, I know. So I, I don't even know what the end game is. They I don't know what the end game yeah, is either. So, That's yeah. the problem. Right. They don't know what the end game is either. Ratings. Chris, thank you yeah, so much no, for coming in. Yeah, really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, great. And a great, great free-ranging discussion. And, uh, and good luck. Wow. What a great. legend. That was great. I didn't know what Gulf and Western was. Gulf and Western? Yeah. What is Gulf and Western? Oh, you didn't either. It's a, it's like a manufacturer. He was talking about being oh, the Dominican yes, right. Republic. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I thought this was an age thing. I mean, we're basically the same age, you and I. No. Well, Not I wish really. we were. Yeah. yeah. You're like, I wish you were older, Katie, because you're pretty <laughs> immature. Yeah. So we have um, some housekeeping. Yeah, we're, so we're doing something very exciting. You guys may know that I'm very famous for my drinking games Your on debate Twitter. debate night drinking games? <laughs> no, Matt, you have, uh, one of the things that you're most well known for, I think, is besides your amazing books and reporting, is that you have these drinking games that you used to write up and now both write up in advance, but also live tweet, right? Right, yeah. So tell us about that. Where did that come from, by the way? I actually don't remember. Didn't it start with just Republicans? Debates or um, no? I think it might have started with the last debate cycle in 2015, 16. Okay. And so we started earlier, we but. started doing that. And so we're going to do it again next week. We're yeah. actually going to drink and you can watch. I think it, it's going to be on live. Right? Yeah, so, on YouTube. We'll, we'll yeah. put out a link. We'll put out, um, you follow us follow on Twitter. Us on Twitter. I'm, I'm KT Halps, which is letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S. And you are? At M Taibbi. Right. Yeah, that'll be really exciting. So uh, you can join us next week when we drink ourselves to death on yeah. camera. On Tuesday night, yeah. the 15th of October. Yeah. So if that was useful idiots, thanks a lot and we'll see you next week. Yeah, thanks. Bye. Don't forget to rate and review. <laughs> right, right, because we hate Pods of America. Yes. Screw those people. We must crush them. <laughs> I'm Michael Toscano, hoping you'll join me on the First Light Podcast. We get to the heart of the event shaping our world as our correspondents check in and we talk with newsmakers and people who can take us behind the headlines. The First Light Podcast, wherever you get podcasts.